One of the last trips I did with that group of youth, the second or third night I was there, a couple of the kids cornered me in the guest house we were staying at and said, why did you bring us here, Mike? And I have to admit, it was the, one of the greatest feelings of success I've ever had in my life. <laughs> like, yes, we are, we're doing it. Like they're recognizing that this, these problems, these issues, these concerns, the experiences of people are not things you can solve or make right in a day, seven days, seven years, that these things take time. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Shalane. We're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. We're excited today to have Mike Jantz with us. He's a member of the Food for the Hungry Canada team, and we're just looking forward to getting to know you a little bit. Mike, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So, Mike, where are you joining us from today? I am joining you from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which is just across the harbor from Halifax. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you taking time to be here. As you know, we are a podcast where we're interested in talking about issues of poverty, and you work with an organization who does international poverty alleviation. Eric and I are pretty familiar with Food for the Hungry since we both work for that organization as well. But we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey and uh, how you came to be part of Food for the Hungry. Yeah, that's a, that, that could be a couple podcasts, but I'll try and keep it short. Yeah, so I, I've been working for Food for the Hungry for a year now. And I have been, prior to working for Food for the Hungry, I was actually working for a small nonprofit doing strictly fundraising, grant writing. And I came to that place through pastoral work and writing and convergence of working with a lot of nonprofits who were struggling to figure out ways to raise funds and realizing that I had some skills that could help them and got some more training and eventually ended up with Food for the Hungry. So that's the very short version. But uh, as I learned more about Food for the Hungry, I was learning of an organization that matched a lot of my heart concerns about the way I see the kingdom of God being made real within this world. And I saw an organization that was working in in a way that dignified everyone who they were working with. And that was a real draw for me. Well, Mike, one of the big questions that we ask all of our guests, and it feels like an appropriate starting point given the nature of your work, and as you've already explained a little bit about Food for the Hungry and some of the the reasons why you were drawn to that role in particular, um, one of the questions that we like to ask is, if you could finish the sentence of poverty is dot, 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 if you could finish that sentence and then explain kind of how you've kind of ended up there and then how that's also brought you into your your current role with Food for the Hungry. Yeah, poverty is complicated. <laughs> that's the, that's that's the most that's the that's the definition that sits the most solidly within my experience of journeying around poverty. And I would say in many ways that's the what my journey has been. I definitely did not grow up in poverty. All of my experiences of poverty have been being with and next to and looking at and finding ways in, but in a situation where it's, you know, I've been looking at the complexities of it and wondering how someone like myself can be of assistance in helping other people move through and out of poverty. So, and there's so many layers to that. And, but there was a pivotal time when I was 
in university at Trinity Western, I was serving at the food bank in Langley. And I remember just taking meals out to some people and then sitting down and talking to some guys. And I, it was the first time as a young adult having the realization that for me to end up being someone who's being served the meal at the food bank, I would have to burn so many bridges. I would have to make so many mistakes. And realizing that I had been given something just where, where I was born, the community I was in, that to enter into this other world and really be with people who are experiencing poverty was a massive leap for me and would be a lifetime of learning how to be with people who are experiencing poverty and really hear their stories and understand the complexities of their situation. It's quite foreign to most of us, I think. I really appreciate what you said there about being around poverty as opposed to actually personally experiencing a lot of, of what you saw, even in those those individuals that you were getting to know in the food bank experience. Um, Mike, when you think about your journey and you think about coming to understand the complexities of poverty, what are some of the things that really stand out? You've mentioned one pivotal point. Have there been other trips, other encounters that have really helped shape that definition for you? Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a few, to be honest. Uh, one really foundational one was when I graduated from university, I went straight to Haiti and went and just kind of moved into an orphanage. <laughs> um, went there, kind of had spent time in the academy and had spent that whole time starting to get frustrated going, I just want to be doing this stuff. I don't want to be talking about it. And then got to this place that has generations of injustice and poverty. And the story is so woven through with other nations taking advantage of this nation and realizing what a small, tiny piece of any solution I could be just on my own. And realizing how complex and how long the journey is for a place like Haiti to come out of the really the impoverished situation that 99% of the nation is in. It's such a, a widespread experience in a place like that. One other really pivotal experience I would say is growing in passion for justice and walking downtown Vancouver one time and seeing a prostitute outside the C bus station being harassed by the security guard and me being so filled with the sense of the lack of dignity this man was showing towards this woman and just jumping in to the middle of the situation and realizing I was completely ill-equipped to, <laughs> to deal with it, but just following my heart. And that really encouraged me to, to carry this path for the rest of my life of learning how to address injustice, to be with those who are being treated unjustly, who are living in poverty. And I would say at this point in my mid-40s, I'm, I'm a long ways from being near the end of that path. So. And to speak to that path, I think it's one that many have experienced. And at least in my, you know, interactions with just various people throughout my life, you know, there is that sense of justice, the sense of, you know, these things need to be made right or something's, something's not right here. I need to jump in and there can be a, I'm going to jump in both feet first. Oh, here we go. And then you realize, oh my goodness, I'm way steep in something I don't really actually know what to do now. So I would love to hear more about um, 
you know, absolutely those experiences have been so formative. And then where have those experiences of, you know, okay, I've jumped in, but now I've also realized that I need to do some maybe growing or learning or what have been some of the turning points towards where you have found yourself learning more, growing more, um, understanding more of that complicated topic of poverty? There's, there's a couple that immediately come to mind. And when I was doing my um, master's degree at Regent, I spent a lot of time with Bob Eckblad, who's he's a gentleman, he's a prophet regent, and he lives in Cedro Woolley, Washington State. And he has a seminary for convicts, ex-convicts, migrant farm workers. And I took a course of them called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And we would study the Bible with convicts. They would, they would get released from prison for a time and we would sit and read the Bible with them. And one of the things I realized was that I had developed a cautiousness in interpreting the Bible that was also a cautiousness in receiving and offering the love of Christ, that I wanted to be right. I wanted my answers to be right. I wanted my responses to be right. And out of that came this desire to be right in love and not really worry too much about being right theologically or doctrinally or anything else. And I think the next part that grew out of that was leading, leading trips to Haiti with youth. First, I was there by myself, and then I was taking these young people who had these same expectations, probably even more naive than I was. Um, for some of them, they're 14, 15, 16, 17, and preparing them for the reality that their trip might be disappointing and that they weren't going to change the world in seven days of going to Haiti and walking around and visiting and meeting some new people. And uh, one of the last trips I did with that group of youth, the second or third night I was there, a couple of the kids cornered me in the guest house we were staying at and said, why did you bring us here, Mike? Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, it was the, one of the greatest feelings of success I've ever had. In my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, we, we're doing it. Like, they're recognizing that this, these problems, these issues, these concerns, the experiences of people are not things you can solve or make right in a day, seven days, seven years, um, that these things take time. Uh, Mike, can we just circle back a little bit to what you were saying about um, reading the scripture piece when you were talking about your Bible, the Bible study? I would love to hear you just unpack that a little bit more when you're talking about the the desire to love and to be right in love, I believe is what you said, as opposed to being right about theology or doctrine or those kinds of things. Can you share a little bit more about that with us? Yeah, I think, I mean, in my own experience and just being working as a pastor, sitting on boards of churches, and I've constantly run up against it myself, and I've heard it from other people. Oftentimes, our response is, my response to myself is, I'm not ready yet. Or churches, you know, a new idea will come up that is a bit risky, um, that there might be potential of losing congregation members over it. And the response is, we're not ready. And I guess that's sent me into this cycle. Of, what does it mean that we're not ready? Like if we're going with Christ into where God already is dwelling and we're going there spurred on by the Holy Spirit, 
I feel like we could spend the rest of our lives making sure we're right, making sure we've got this all figured out, that what we're doing is going to be successful, that it absolutely will do no harm. And that would be really sad if we as the body of Christ lived our lives that way. Mm-hmm. Well, when I hear that, and and correct me if I'm hearing this through my own filter, but that's almost a a paralysis that could that could set in in the pursuit of doing things the right way all the time that we could actually end up getting in our own way. Am I am I tracking with what you're saying there? Is that right? Yeah, there's a danger, right? That's and I think we've all experienced it where we've mm-hmm. we've set, we've doubted ourselves. That voice, the Holy Spirit says to you, go do this right now. And you're like, oh, that's crazy. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. And then when we do do it, we're like, that was really invigorating. And maybe it didn't go great, but you did it. <laughs> you stepped out. You like, kind of like walking across the street to protect that woman and mm-hmm. getting there and realizing I have no skills at all to navigate this situation. <laughs> but yeah. but it, something was unleashed in me. There was a flowering of my soul and my courage in that moment that I've carried forth, even though it didn't go well, I would do it again. Mm. Mm. And what would you do differently now? I would be calmer. I think I was, uh, I was filled with a lot of self-righteous anger at the moment. Mm. <laughs> so I, I came in a little fiery at the security guard. <laughs> <laughs> the woman was very grateful that the security guard and I did not have a healthy interaction. <laughs> <laughs> I was not an instrument of peace towards him. <laughs> well, Mike, if there's, um, to segue just a little bit, when your name comes up, to be totally honest, there are three things that immediately come to mind. One is coffee, one is surfing, and one is spiritual formation. So I've grabbed this triumvirate of, of, of things I'm not trying to reduce you to. Here's, here's what makes Mike, Mike. But um that last one, spiritual formation, always stands out to me, um, especially in these conversations around poverty as well, because it doesn't seem like there would be development and spiritual formation. You know, our conversations so far have, have touched on this a little bit, but I would love to know a little bit more of kind of where you see the roots of spiritual formation um, really supporting and being helpful in poverty alleviation work and development work. That's a good question. I could I could link all three of those together if you wanted, but I think we we don't have enough, we don't have enough time for that. So. <laughs> oh well, could could we at least drink coffee while we're talking about these things? Yeah, I don't drink coffee after noon, so it's one thirty for me. But <laughs> well, just just surfing metaphors and spiritual formation. Yeah, then. yeah. about that. Yeah. No, you know, it's a few years ago. I was feeling a little little empty spiritually, and um, felt like. A lot of the spiritual counseling I had had wasn't connecting with where I was at. And a friend of mine, a really good friend, said, hey, there's a really great spiritual director at the Jesuit Center. He's a Jesuit priest. Why don't you go meet with him? So I started meeting with this gentleman, and it was transformational for me in my experience of God in the way I pray um, and how I see God in my life. And I'd never experienced anything like it. I grew up very typical evangelical upbringing. And I, I began to, I feel like much of the spiritual counseling I had received had a preconceived destination and outcome of where I was to end up with God. Mm-hmm. And what I experienced through spiritual formation was 
there is a very clear agenda, I guess you could say, but it's the agenda is just that we learn to direct our attention to the presence of God. Hmm. How is God present to me? How is God at work in my life? That's that's the basis. And then the prescription that's given is to pray. And so what I've learned from that is that can be applied to anyone in any situation, anywhere, no matter how much shame they're filled with, no matter how much power they feel they have, that this this crosses a bunch of different boundaries. So um, I actually take that approach in in the development work I do as far as fundraising even. Like I grew up in a home, my parents, quite successful business people, very sales oriented. And so anything that smacks of sales techniques, I immediately tune out and turn away from. And mm. I could probably learn some more of that now, but I really have, a, my, my, I bristle against it. Not because my parents abuse that site, but I grew up with so much of it around me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, for better or for worse, there's a very fine line in that approach and conversation between really wanting someone to experience the gifts of what you're talking to them about and getting them to respond in a way you want them to respond. Mm. Um, and so I'm trying to learn how to, when I'm speaking to a donor, to explore where God is present in their life, to explore mm. what God is saying to them right now. They've come and talked to us. They're mm. obviously concerned about the things that God is concerned about. That might not be food for the hungry. That might not be a partnership, but it might be. So I was just joking because with one of my coworkers, he asked me how long it takes to close with a business partner. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. Like two months, one year, two years, I don't know. Like (laughs) it sounds like a pretty radical approach to fundraising, actually. Pretty different than the norm. Uh, And I'm not sure it is really that, I hope it's not that different, but I think it's allowing, it's allowing the space to step back when the spirit obviously isn't pushing someone towards what end you're looking for. Um, I learned that from my father, who's a very gifted evangelist. He's someone, he's one of the few people in my life who I know, I can honestly say, you have the gift of evangelism, but I've, I've, been present when he's been verbally sharing the gospel with someone. Then I've seen him stop and go, Hey, did you get a new car? And just all of a sudden start talking to this gentleman about his car. Hmm. And afterwards, and this one instance asking him, so what, what happened there? And he's like, Oh, it wasn't time. It's like, it doesn't, it's not my, like that's God's thing with him. That's, that's their, that's their journey. Hmm. And so I, I really, that was really formational for me. Yeah, that the spirit is at work in, in people's lives, and we need to respect that and let it go where it will go. And the spiritual direction has really helped me experience that and trust it most mm-hmm. of the time, some of the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> what I love about what I'm hearing you say, Mike, is that ultimately this is not about bringing dollars out of someone's pocket into an organization's coffers. It is very much about a mutual transformation process where we are all brought into right relationship with God and we are really being present to other people, which is just a beautiful thing. And I think when I'm, you know, when I'm joking about sounds a little bit radical, when I think of 
or have in the past thought of traditional fundraising, that isn't really the first thing that has come to my mind is that idea that, hey, you know what? If this isn't the right organization for you, let's let's pray together and let's see where God is leading you and maybe you're going to a different one. That's the part I think that feels really quite different to me. Yeah, yeah and you know, I think we want to make sure that people, if they're going to partner with our organization or any other organization, if it's a business, they have employees, they have partners in the business. You want to make sure that if they're really going to impact the kingdom of God with their support towards this organization, if part of that is sharing it with others. And you want to make sure that they're not wondering if they were just sold something and whether or mm. not they can trust what they've just gotten themselves into. And that's going to take time for anyone, no matter how new or how long they've walked in a relationship with an organization. But my hope is that when they say, yeah, we're going to partner with you, that they know they've made that decision with them and with God. And I want to make sure that that's that I, I haven't pressed them into something that they're not prepared for and that maybe they weren't really willing to, and they're not willing to share with others or yeah, share with their staff and let them know where, where their support is going. That's, that's where it comes from for me. There's definitely a, a discipleship element and a passing on, Mm-hmm. that that is hopeful and i feel like someone needs to be at peace with the decision they've made if they're gonna invite others into any type of good work yeah i really i really liked the way that you put we're, what we're talking about is gifts and when we're talking about donations that gift that word gift can can be associated only with the donor the donor is giving a gift to an organization. But you used that word in an interesting way to describe the gift of what the organization is doing, the gift of participating in the organization, the gift that, in a sense, the giver receives by being a part of it. And whether that's a business, whether that's um, a church, whether that's an individual or a family, I thought that was a really interesting point that you brought up, that there is this and Shalane used that phrase, mutual transformation, which I, I feel like could could uh, use some unpacking even more in this conversation, that there there is a mutuality to the way that you're describing this, um, that a, a donor is not simply giving out of their own abundance. They're not giving just from of themselves, but they are actually also being given something. And I think that that's a really important distinction from a traditional linear A to B, you know, one directional giving experience. So I'm just curious, would you mind explaining a little bit more of how is this, how is this venture mutual and how does that differ from how a lot of people probably would think donor organization relations actually take place? Yeah, I'm not sure I can say how it's mutual because hopefully it's unique. Really, Mm -hmm. honestly, I I would hope it's unique to each each person. And um, Mm -hmm. I know there's... I've definitely, in much of my interaction with donors, there's an unwillingness to speak about the gift that they might receive and might have to give away through a partnership with with us. And uh, I push back against that often. And you know, the 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 verse, the the quote that's always given is, you know, don't let the left hand see what the right hand is doing. Like that's always the, and mm. uh, and and yet, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, there's something to be shared. There's something to be given. There's something to be given away. And, and I think beyond that, you know, one of the things we've relied on 
at FH is there's mutual transformation through traveling and spending time with the communities that someone is supporting that that FH is partnering with. And we're not doing that right now. So the conversation Mm. is a little different right now as well. And I think we're exploring what does the mutual transformation look like without physical presence with the other? Because as much as sometimes, and we talk about this at FH, the travel side can feel a bit like a bit much and it's it's resource heavy it it costs a lot of money it takes a lot of time but there's something there's something invaluable that happens when you hug someone when you eat their food when you are invited into their house mm-hmm. and those things just in and of themselves transform us um, the invitation receiving the invitation into someone's home is almost always transformative in my experience, no matter where mm-hmm. it is. There's a there's a humility on both sides that's necessary to to enter into that type of relationship. So we're inviting people to do that as a part of their relationship with us. And we've experienced it. So we believe it'll be transformative for them. How? I don't I don't know what those what needs to be transformed in each individual donor. That's that's interesting that you would say that, Mike, because that's one of the things that comes to mind in this conversation is as a donor, I I think, especially prior to coming um, to FH, but, you know, this is a process that God has been doing in my life over numerous years, is recognizing that while I have much, relatively speaking, uh, to give materially, I also have much that I need to learn in other areas and much I need to receive. And I think oftentimes as donors, we need to stop, I need to stop and say, what is my need? I I can give this, but what do I need to receive? And there's a real humility, I think, required in recognizing that I have as much or more need then I have to give. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting one. And it's one, it's one sometimes that could be uncomfortable to talk about because we're so used to thinking of need having to do with material things. Um, mm. It's economic, it has to do with food or um, health maybe, or access to certain things. And so, and, and that is a very different type of poverty, right? Like there's, there's different types of needs. Some are desperate. And some, it would just be a shame if we didn't share them and address them and move through them for the rest of our lives. That, that's why I think the poverty conversation, we come back to poverty as it's complicated, right? And so when we start trying to talk about shared experiences of poverty, we do share experiences of poverty, but each is very unique and individual. And um, we can share it together and we can journey together. But what we're experiencing will always be unique. And um, many of us in the Western world, um, middle class, our needs aren't as urgent or desperate um, as far as survival, as far as Mm -hmm. getting to tomorrow and providing for our kids or being emotionally stable for our family or our friends or our community. Yeah, it's a great, a great uh, distinction that you've made there. And and that's a conversation that we've had before on the show is that as a middle class Canadian citizen, you know, I, we have 
an amount of stability, like you said, that someone in Haiti might not have. But as we're talking about this kind of mutually shared experience and the mutual transformation that can take place, it, I think it really is an important distinction. And the word vulnerability is the one that comes to mind for me, that we can be all experiencing, to, to be frank, when you described being invited into someone's home, I went, oh, I missed that. That was fun when we used to do that. Um, and you, I know you were speaking about going going overseas or going to another community or another country, but even even for myself in this time of social distancing and, and keeping into our bubbles, you know, there is that human need that I have for connection, for community. But the fact of the matter is I am not fighting for survival when it comes to you know, food stability, or um, I have relatively stable income, that is a different experience. And so I'm glad that you make that distinction that, you know, we all do have these needs, or we all can be transformed. But then there also is this vulnerability piece, which uh, really does need to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. And our, many of us have the security that allows us to work on our vulnerabilities ourselves <laughs> or to, you know, we have access to people around us in our community who we can go to for help journeying through what we might see as a vulnerability mm-hmm. or our own needs. And I think that's one of the big differences to those who are really truly marginalized and are living with a deep vulnerability is that that first step might not even be obvious um, or might not be there at all. And that's, that's something many of us do not, not experience. Right. That access, yeah. that opportunity, those, those doors that are open and available to us that we don't even realize are closed and locked for many other people. Yeah. Hey, Mike, um, appreciate what we've been talking about here. Wondering if we could just kind of take the conversation in a little bit of a different direction, because I feel like, I don't know about you, Eric, but I feel like we are sitting on a wealth of resources for reading. Because, mm-hmm. Mike, you strike me as somebody who would love to read, who has probably read widely. What what would you recommend? What are the things that are works that are really speaking to you right now or that you would say, boy, if this topic is capturing your interest, here's what I would recommend you read? Mm. That's interesting. This, this summer, I've actually been reading, reading a lot of books around anti-racism as a lot of us says but i'm not going to mm. talk about that I, I would i would suggest all of us read some of those books um mm-hmm. but the two books that immediately came to mind and i didn't realize they were interconnected until i thought of them and one is a book i'm just about finished that i'm reading for the second time maybe the third time i tend to reread books um if it stays on my bookshelf that's a sign to me that it should be read again but um one that I've reread also numerous times in the past years is The New Parish. Just a, a look at a communal, place-focused, parish-focused expression of the church. Um, mm. What it means to be to bind yourself to place. And uh, I find it to be a really hopeful book. And it was written a few years ago, but in light of COVID and where churches are at and that they're, they've been scattered a little bit more than usual. It seems more applicable than ever. But I'm reading a novel right now. It's called Jaber Crow, and it's one of Wendell Berry's novels. And I'm reading it for, I think it's the second time, like I said, and uh, it's beautiful. I mean, as you can imagine, Wendell Berry's, you know, his, 
him as an essayist and a poet when he writes fiction uh it's it's beautiful the prose is beautiful but um the story is a story of this barber in a small town called port williams a small agrarian town as it's moving through um the 50s and 60s and 70s into the 80s and follows the changes that happen through progression of farming techniques and that explosion of the use of the automobile and it's it's an exploration of place and love and and creation um he he really as Wendell Berry does throughout all of his works he when he starts talking about the church I think his main sticking point is that they've got so caught up in heaven and hell that they've they've forgotten to notice how beautiful the world is Mm -hmm. and how much there is for us to enjoy in God's creation and the big theme throughout this book is that when we remove ourselves from an anchoring in place, the fabric tears. And when you tear a fabric, it doesn't stop tearing mm-hmm. and there's no going back. And while you may gain some things for the sake of progress, we've often haven't stopped really to consider what we're losing instead in sense of community in sense of simple knowledge of place and soil and the way a stream runs through your community and and the gifts of that um, and their gifts that god has given us you know we had, it's like norman weir's but um speaking in uh, the session that we had a couple weeks ago on food we talk about issues around food but we, are, do we really enjoy it mm-hmm. <laughs> have you stopped to think about food is incredibly tasty for a reason like so that we enjoy it and this expression of place we live in such a mobile world but jesus i feel like the incarnation is this affirmation that place is really important that you know the flesh and blood of god you know moving into the neighborhood the way eugene peterson puts it you know moving into the neighborhood that's that there's a, there's something about staying in one place and it was profound when we i grew up in white rock in the vancouver area in the suburb of vancouver and when we moved out here to nova scotia 14 years ago i met most people i had met had never been on a plane they maybe went to the drove to maine to go to the outlet stores for back to school shopping but they that's as far as they went but because of that their family structures were so tight their sense of community was incredibly tight um, and now we live in this community where most people walk, most people are really connected to the neighborhood and to leave here for us would be this wrenching apart of so many different things. However, I moved from Vancouver and I spent 30 years in the lower mainland. And there's also this sense of place when I see a massive cedar tree. Um, when I see dark green black mountains cascading down into the ocean, there's this sense of sense of home. And so I think the main takeaway from this Wendell Berry book, Jaber Crow, is that place place is worth considering. And we're seeing it right now with COVID. There are people moving mm. from Toronto to Nova Scotia because there's no cases of COVID here. Like, what is being lost? Like are you so disconnected from your neighborhood in Ontario that it's mm. just a 
quick decision to move your life because now you can work from home and go to a place where there's less cases of COVID. <laughs> um, that feels to me like a statement on a lack of connection to a community mm-hmm. more than a, more than a move for safety or, um, and that might be unfair. Maybe those people have been considering this move for years and they can do it now. But um, to me, there has to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not unique to people moving east. We're seeing it out of Vancouver, out into the valley even. Mm-hmm. And lots of um, more availability of the high rise kind of places because people are saying, I, if I can work from home, I want a different sense of place. Yeah. yeah. I want more connection to nature. Yeah. Or investing in landscaping and renovating their houses. And right, like the landscaping businesses are booming right now because um, people are looking around and going, oh, like, I mean, if you mm. only sleep in a house, why really care for it? But if you're spending all day there, you start thinking, oh, this, there's some things I'd like to be surrounded by. Um, and I think to bring it back around to development work, I think this expression of place and the, the what we see in the incarnation the story of Jesus, I think it's something we need to make sure in development work, we affirm when we are visiting um, the communities we partner with that the place they are, the place they live is beautiful and that God dwells there and there are gifts in that soil and in the views in the mountains. And there's just to be in that place, there is a gift. And the goal isn't to be somewhere else. That development doesn't mean you'll no longer be in that valley. Um, you'll be there in a new way with a new hope is the story of incarnation, I think. That's beautiful. Uh, I don't mean to say this in any way lightly, but that truly feels like a benediction of of place that you've just said there, Mike. I appreciate that so, so much. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you uh, coming and joining us on the show today. Shalane, did you have any other questions for our honored guest? You know, Mike, I would just... Uh, kind of to wrap it up here today, what is something that you would share with our listeners as a takeaway? If I'm, boy, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, Mike has said a lot about spiritual formation. He's talked a lot about things that are just maybe new and different, maybe things that people have not considered before, and you've sparked some interest. What might be a first step for a listener if they are just fascinated by what we've talked about today? Maybe go for a walk. <laughs> awesome. And what, yeah. what, what might I do on that walk, Mike? <laughs> Look around. Yeah. yeah. Use all your senses and, and hopefully be open to some word, some voice, the voice of God, um, maybe in an unsurprising way and maybe saying something that doesn't fit or is not what you expected God to say, but that being open to whatever that might be and trusting that God is with you on that walk and in those places and in what you're seeing and hearing. It's a seemingly very simple first step, and yet it is so, it really, I think, encompasses so much of what you're saying because it it sounds to me like a, it's about being present. It's about being in tune, about listening for the voice of God speaking in the midst of whoever I'm with or wherever I am in each day. Yeah, and I think I say that because for me, when there's something I need to work through or think through, uh, I'll go surfing. 
that's to be in the ocean. And it's not about riding the waves. It's about being in the ocean, being quiet. There's something that happens in those places. And one of the, one of my deep longings is that everyone would have something in their life. Like surfing has been for me as far as stillness and seeing and listening and being quiet and being spurred to prayer. And um, that's been a gift. And I, I think I would hope that all of us could find that in some way, shape, or form in our lives. As a non-surfer, I'd love to explore at a different time this whole conversation of being in the ocean for quiet and stillness, because that is not the picture that the ocean <laughs> conjures up for me. <laughs> yeah, Nova Scotia has a lot of point breaks, and you can paddle around the waves quite easily. So. Term I am not familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> the only point break I'm familiar with has Keanu Reeves in it, so that's where right. uh, my, my knowledge ends yeah. right there. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your honesty and your uh, willingness to just be candid with us and share your heart and your journey. And uh, we just look forward to having further conversations with you and appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you. It was great. To explore what your next steps could be or find out more about Food for the Hungry and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources. 